Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And I'm excited to have the full crew back with us today. Uh, we are joined again by Megan Payne. Megan, thanks for coming back. Hey, thanks for having me as always. And Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing over there? Uh, surviving, uh, as always, but less so than usual because the the dreaded law school is, is starting back and tomorrow is my first day, so... Winter is coming. Yes. On this week's show, we are going to take our first look at the general election in the governor's race between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp. We've uh, had this campaign going on now for a couple of weeks, and so we've gotten to see kind of the early moves out of the Kemp campaign and the Abrams campaign. So we're going to take a look at those early strategies out of the two candidates and see if that can tell us anything about how things are going to go in the fall. And then our second topic this week is going to be an interview that I had with State Representative Scott Holcomb. Representative Holcomb has been pretty outspoken on election security issues, on things related to improving the security of our balloting machines, and on some other stuff related to you know Secretary of State Brian Kemp and his handling of voting issues as he uh, runs for governor. Um, so we're going to hear from Scott Holcomb on those issues for our second segment, and that'll be our show for the week. Um, but let's go ahead and start with our first topic this week. So we have the general election matchup now, Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams. And in the early days of this campaign, we have really seen Brian Kemp go on the offensive. Uh, Kemp, along with the Republican Governors Association, has hit Stacey Abrams on her finances, on her position on guns, on her position on the Hope Scholarship, among a whole lot of other things. While Stacey Abrams has really kind of held her fire, she's been focusing on small business development, on uh, education issues, on K-12 education, and uh, some of the other things that her and Democrats have kind of rallied around calling solvable problems. So, Megan, let's start with you. What is kind of your first impression of the different strategies that these two candidates are taking as this race kicks off? Well, you already kind of highlighted it. It's very clear that, you know, Kemp is going ahead with the attack ads and Abrams is trying to do what the Democrats have been asking her to do for a while, which is to actually campaign on the issues and have some, you know, useful dialogue around it. Um, It's exciting to hear actual politics be discussed for once instead of just drama and shit. But, you know, it is a little concerning that Kemp's already out of the gate, basically running her name through the mud and has been for a while. And she she's not retaliating, which, again, is great taking the higher ground. But we all know that attack ads actually do work. So that's concerning. Yeah, Luke, is there any downside for Abrams to taking the high road while Kemp sort of slugs away to get this thing started? I don't think so, just because... You know, one of my biggest complaints of the Republican primary was just how divisive it was and how much it felt like they weren't talking about anything that actually mattered. And I think that Kemp is trying that strategy with Abrams, and it might not be, he might not find it as effective if Abrams is far less willing to engage him on that same level. And if she keeps it, you know, uh, to, to use the old phrase, it's the economy stupid and focus on, uh, you know, her policies for Georgia and the things that she wants to do, I think that very well might benefit her because at, I, I don't think a lot of people actually care about the mudslinging stuff. I mean, it's it's it came up in the Democratic primary and it obviously did not affect her winning at all. And I think also compared to some other like personal scandals that Democrats have dealt with, I mean, or Republicans, I mean, anybody has dealt with uh, running for office, hers seem really minor. And even if the headline is bad, her explanation is one that I think every Georgia voter, regardless of their party affiliation, can like firmly understand and has either been in that situation themselves or uh, close to it or a close family member has been. So I I don't think uh, she's really risking uh, that much by not engaging on it. I guess I'm just going to say that I'm worried that statistics do show that attack ads and negative campaigns do mobilize more voters. So I just wonder how she's going to make up for that aspect of the campaign. Not necessarily like I don't I'm glad that we're not slinging that she's not slinging that type of content. Don't get me wrong. But how is she going to mobilize voters without getting them pissed off? 
Well, I think she can get them pissed off, but get them pissed off about um, the issues that she's running on because she wants to do a lot of exciting things for Georgia. And part of her arguments need need to be that Brian Kemp not only is incapable of doing those things, but he's not interested in doing them. And I, I think it's early days still. Um, I, I think a lot of uh, what the Abrams camp has been doing is trying to build up a positive narrative for her and defying her since she is a... Uh, bigger unknown than Brian Kemp is to the electorate of Georgia. Brian Kemp, uh, you know, I, I don't think he's a household name, but uh, regular voters have uh, voted for him statewide several times or have voted against someone, uh, you know, uh, for him statewide. So they know the name, they've seen the name, and I think Abrams uh, is setting the groundwork for who she is, and then after that she can, uh, you know, start pivoting more towards the issues in which her and Brian Kemp differ and the different ways that they'll pursue policy in Georgia. That's fair. The other thing I wonder is like, how much reach does, you know, do Brian Kemp and the RGA's negative attacks have right now? You know, traditionally, people start paying more attention to, you know, races like these after Labor Day when when November gets closer. And the one thing that Stacey Abrams is doing right now is she's doing a lot of national media. And so, you know, I wonder how many people actually saw the RGA ad or, or saw some of what Brian Kemp is saying compared to the number of people who saw uh, Abrams' appearance on uh, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah the other day. She was she was on The Daily Show. She was on the cover of Time magazine. You know, I, I think this is part of her building up a positive image of herself and trying to define herself despite what Kemp is saying. I do think that you know, like you said, Megan, we live we live in an age of negative partisanship. And so the longer that Kemp gets to hang out there and just say bad things about Abrams and say, sort of, you know, I think his, his good, but very nonspecific things about his own ideas, you know, the longer that he can sit out there and not have any negativity attached to him, you know, the longer he gets to sort of enjoy that honeymoon period with voters as people start to pay more attention. I don't think that she'll be holding her fire later in the fall, you know, but but that's when it when it really could get ugly. Um, but let's dive into some of the specifics of, of some of the negativity that's been going around. So Republicans have zeroed in on the fact that Stacey Abrams owes back taxes to the IRS. Um, she says that she is on a payment plan with the IRS, that she never missed payments, that she never missed filing her taxes, and that her agreement with the IRS to settle this debt was all above board, and that the reason that she has this debt on her books is that she could defer uh, payments to the IRS, defer payments on her taxes. She could not defer payments for her father's cancer treatments. And so you know, Republicans, despite her sort of being upfront about it and, and not running from it, Republicans have really zeroed in on this issue. But what they've seemed to be zeroing in on at this point is not necessarily the fact that Abrams has this debt, but that Abrams has this debt and still loaned money to her campaign. And, you know, Kemp has a line on this. He says Stacey Abrams made over a million dollars in the last few years. Instead of paying more than $50,000 in back taxes, she gave $50,000 to her campaign. If that's not criminal, it should be. What do you guys think of specifically trying to spin this not as a Stacey Abrams has debt, we can't trust her issue, but as a question of her priorities um, in terms of loaning money to her campaign instead of paying off her IRS debt? I think she's being smart, actually. Like if, if you just think about it from a financial perspective for a minute, the three of us, we probably all have some level of student debt. We might have a car loan. I know I personally have a mortgage. And it's about assets versus liabilities. And in this case, she's investing in her campaign, which is ultimately an asset, even if she doesn't win, which I really hope she does for the record. It's an asset to her brand, to her name. She's investing in herself. So if we're looking at it from like a real smart financial perspective, it's like, you know, at least my mom has always told me, pay yourself first, even if it's a little bit. She said, you know, the order should go. She's religious. So she says it's God, yourself, the government, and then everybody else. And so, you know, I don't know about the God bit for Stacey Abrams, but based on what I was taught, she's following that pretty well. 
So I just have a big problem with what he what Kemp is slinging. Yeah, I I find it hilarious that a, a you know a Republican is criticizing a Democrat for uh, not giving the government money uh, because usually Republicans are very excited about opportunities to not give the government money. And yeah, I thought taxation uh, was theft. Right, and so it's just like it's not it's not a it's, it it rings a as a, ver- a very hollow attack, and you know also. As I was mentioning earlier, the whole reason that Abrams even has these tax issues is because she was spending a lot of money trying to help a family member of cancer, which, again, I, I feel like most people can can understand and get behind. And it's not like it would be a different issue if she didn't have a payment plan with the IRS or you know they hadn't worked something out and she was like falling behind on that. I mean, that's just not what's happening here, what's What's happening is that she is following her obligations and they have made a deal and they're, they're you know, complaining uh, that she's not going on a faster timetable, which she has no obligation to go on a faster timetable. She's doing what the IRS and her agreed to do, and that's that's really all that needs to be said on this. And I just don't think this is going to be a really, you know, like, I don't, I don't feel like there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be like, man... I was really going to vote for Stacey Abrams because she wants to expand Medicaid and, you know, help me uh, get go back to technical school to get uh, a new job after, you know, the Great Recession. But, man, she didn't pay her taxes. So I'm going to vote for Brian Kemp, who doesn't want to do either of those things. It just, it just doesn't seem like a motivating issue to me. Right. Well, and it's not $200,000 or whatever the number it was for Kavanaugh with the Nationals in just like, I think, what was that? Just straight up credit card debt? Like, you know, it kind of pales in comparison what her debt is for versus what other high ranking, especially Republican politicians and leadership have built up. I'd only spend that much money for teams in first place. And that's not you, Washington Nationals. The other angle to this, though, is that Kemp has financial issues of his own. He's involved in business deals in agribusiness in Kentucky, where where uh, some of the businesses that he's helped invest in have gone south. And he has lawsuits over unpaid debts related to that. Abrams has not taken the bait to hit him on that and sort of make these financial issues a wash. Her spokesperson did hit Kemp on this, calling him a multimillionaire who's been caught cheating farmers. You know, is there any reason for her to try to make these issues a wash to, to kind of wrap up this money topic? Or is you know, some of this is, it. you know, there's just limited airspace. There's only so much time that she can talk. Um, you know, is she wise to focus her her own words on other things? I, I think you just answered your own question, Kyle, at the end of it. I mean, there's limited time to talk about issues. I think exactly what I just said stands for Brian Kemp voters as well. Like, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of Brian Kemp voters who are like, man, I was really going to vote for Brian Kemp, but he made some bad investments in some farms in a state I don't live in. I, I just don't see it being very motivating. Um, I think Abrams has a huge job ahead of her of getting a lot of voters who are usually not engaged in midterm elections to show up and to vote for her. And I don't think she's going to win a whole lot of them by throwing mud at Brian Kemp. Uh, I think the the Republicans who will be interested in voting for her or willing to vote for her, they're going to be people who are paying attention enough that like they, they know the score. She doesn't need to spend all of her time focused on getting those folks to get interested in her campaign. She needs to, or disinterested with Brian Kemp's, she needs to focus on getting Democratic voters to, to show up. And I don't think if you're trying to convince a, you know, a Democrat that shows up every four years to vote for president, to vote for her, I don't think talking about some bad investment decisions that Brian Kemp has made is going to be the sexy issue that gets them off their, you know, their couch or away from their, you know, three part-time jobs to to go show up and vote for her. So the thing that Abrams has been focusing her 
work on has been um, education and small business development. She a couple of weeks ago, she did a small business tour, where she talked about her plan to create a fund to invest in small businesses. She really contrasted her vision of economic development with what Republicans have done in recent years by giving tax expenditures to big companies, primarily, her focus has been on a small business fund that aims to give smaller amounts of money, something like $5,000 or $10,000 to businesses on Main Street that that need a little extra cash or a little little extra help to to get off the ground. The other focus, she did some some press conferences and some work on back to school issues where she talked about overhauling the education funding formula uh, making bigger investments in early childhood education and uh, getting back to tuition-free technical college. Here's some of what she had to say about that. I know that for public education to thrive in Georgia, for us to move up the ladder, for us to go back to being the number one place to do business, a place we dropped out of, we stopped being number one or number two, we're out, I think we dropped to number seven, in part because of our educational system. We can't afford not to do the right thing on education. And that's why I want to talk about what we can do across the state of Georgia. Our first and most fundamental responsibility is full funding and access to education for every Georgia school system, for every Georgia child. That full funding is something, unfortunately, we failed to achieve for almost 16 years in the state of Georgia, where we stripped more than $9 billion from education. Luckily, this year, Governor Deal did push for full funding and achieve full funding for the first time in decades. But the problem is that's not enough. We have to deal with the dearth of dollars that have gone into our public school systems, especially in our low-income communities and our rural communities. That is why full funding has to be the first priority. That means fully funding our quality-based education formula, but it also means updating that formula so it reflects who we have in Georgia today. Because that's a 40-year-old formula that ignores the rich diversity that Georgia enjoys today and the complexity of our student population. I'm excited to be standing here saying that I will be the governor who would not only make certain that we fully fund education every year, but that we fix our formula for all of our children. Small business development and education, these are these are substantive issues and they're issues that the Democrats have sort of put under this frame of solvable problems. This early in the race, are, are these things that you guys are, are happy to see that she's focused on? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm personally a small business owner. So I love that she's getting out there and is already saying, hey, small businesses need help. The education thing is also near and dear to me. Um, My partner is a teacher. So yeah, I just uh, and obviously the immigration thing I've talked about it in past um, past podcasts. Immigration is important. And it's important to support our immigrants, um, especially the the dreamers because they didn't have a choice in moving here and so i'm all for everything that she's talking about so far on the small business issue megan does it does this ring true to you she's she's talked about using this fund to to give amounts to small businesses that are somewhere in the range of five thousand ten thousand twenty thousand dollars with the idea being that that this is sort of the difference of success or failure this is kind of the amount that small businesses may need for for certain really specific investments like a piece of equipment or a storefront or something like that. Does that ring true to you as as some of the challenges that face small businesses in Georgia today? Absolutely. I mean, just speaking from my own experience, I work in technology uh, through my small business. And the biggest issue that I have is maintaining my own equipment. Um, You know, it goes everywhere with me, it takes a beating just because it is you know, the equipment that I use all day, every day when I'm working for my business. And so if I can't replace it or repair it, then that makes me look bad. It makes me look like I'm not credible. And then all of a sudden I'm not getting clients anymore. And then the storefront thing is also really helpful. Um, A lot of what people in my industry are doing is they're going toward the um, shared workspace and you have to pay a membership for that, and that gets to be pretty spendy, but it gives you a nice, very professional place that's, you know, not your own living room or a Starbucks to meet with your clients. And it, again, gives you that, like, professional polish. And so just speaking from my industry and my own experience, absolutely, $5,000 or something along those lines would be massive for my business because I'm just entering my second year, and $5,000 would 
seriously take me to an entirely different level. Luke, what do you think of these two issues as a way to sort of define Abrams early if if we sort of take on the assumption that she's trying to define herself around these these solvable problems? Are, are these things that you think resonate with voters and are going to not only just encourage them to come out for her in the fall, but you know, part of her task right now is getting supporters, donations, volunteers. How do you think this plays in terms of like motivating people to to do more than just vote for her? I th- I think it's a uh, interesting issues because they are like practical solutions to real problems, and they're not as like sexy as you know single payer healthcare or some other national issues that are being talked about, but like they're very practical and they're things that I feel like Republican legislatures, if she got elected, wouldn't laugh her out of the room with them. Like they have to take them somewhat seriously, especially if you, you know, saw that she got elected talking about those issues and running, running on them. So on that front, I think it's a, a good start and I think it, it's got enough substance to it that people will and should take it seriously and but it also is hitting issues that are important to democratic voters and so on that front i think it's a it's a good combination of you know you, you could say red meat and substance so what else stands out to y'all about the the early days of this campaign i'm kind of surprised that there hasn't been more fireworks i was i was really expecting the early big of this campaign to be like pretty brutal uh and you know that was something we talked about is uh how both of these candidates don't really like each other that much and so i'm i've been kind of surprised that that hasn't come to the forefront more and um i think the other thing is too is that i i've i was kind of expecting more news about it and maybe I guess actually what surprised me, and this is sort of like a meta analysis, but I've been surprised that I've seen more national coverage of the race than like local coverage that really broke through. Um, Because a lot of people uh, shared the Brian Kemp article from the New York Times and shared that, you know, Abrams was on time. But like, I can't remember the last time the AJC shared something that I saw a lot of people were talking about. So I, I think that's that's my observations. I agree with you. I definitely have noticed the same thing. We're getting a lot more national play than local play, which is a little bit backwards. And so I I guess my big thing is I was expecting also more fireworks, but I was expecting to hear even more about the guns than we're already hearing because I can see the gun issue getting huge, even bigger than it already is. Because that is one of the things that we are hearing a little bit about with Abrams and Kemp having radically to steal the buzzword that's been going around in the news about guns, um, radically opposing views on guns. And so I'm just, I'm really surprised we're not hearing more about it. On this national versus local split, part of this I think has to do with Abrams fundraising strategy. And and this is a strategy that I think has become prominent among progressives and among the left of cashing in with small dollar donors by giving them a lot of little reasons to give you $5 here or $10 there, give you $20 and 18 cents as a symbolic gesture for, for this year. Um, it, it creates this interesting setup though, where a lot of the people who, at least among progressives and, and people who are small dollar donors to their favorite campaigns across the country, there's a lot of like national buy-in to, a a specific candidate. You know, you can see this in Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who won in New York. Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign is a good example of this. But when you drill down on something local, like a governor's race in Georgia, which is very different than California, New York, and Massachusetts, where a lot of this money comes from, do you guys have any reservations about so much outside money and so much outside focus helping to shape what, what, could be really maybe should be a local race not at all actually i mean i the way i see it is you get involved where you can and at the level of government that you can and i know personally the reason i got involved in local politics was because i had such an issue with national politics and i felt like local politics was where i could make a change And my first engagement with local politics was actually not in Georgia because there wasn't a whole lot on the radar at the time. Um, But it was, I think, a campaign in like Kansas or something like that. 
And so I just say, jump in and get your hands dirty where you can. And if that means giving money to a candidate that's not in your state or giving help or giving time or whatever, do it because that's where you can help. Yeah, I'm not I'm not largely concerned either. I mean, Abrams is getting plenty of support from Georgia. It's not an issue of her not, you know, it's not like she's not getting support from Georgia. It's just that she's also getting uh, support from outside groups. And, and another thing is that there hasn't been a lot of investment in Georgia by the National Party or by national campaigns. And so we're we're a little bit behind the eight ball and for the states that have become, you know, gone red to purple, you know, like Virginia and um, really, I mean, Virginia is the main one. And then North Carolina, those states, they're, we're following the model that they followed in that we had, I mean, they both had um, candidates that looked promising in special years and got some national interest and investment uh, in them and a lot of support in their state, which I think Abrams fits that profile perfectly. And uh, you know, off those successes, more people began to believe in the ability of Democrats to win in those states, and they've had uh, more investment both outside of the state and inside the state. So I, I think really it's not it's not that remarkable or concerning that Abrams is getting outside support. It's good, and it's going to help her run a better race and engage more Democrats. But do you think it grounds any of her support? Outside of the state, I'm a, I'm actually a little bit uncomfortable with this. Not not specifically that she's getting money, or you know, it's clear that her proposals and everything that everything that she's thought about is sort of written within the context of what she could do as Georgia's governor. But I think some of what's going on on the left right now is sort of the formation of like a national progressive party, and and I think it raises some questions of, you know, do you do you owe your policy achievements to the people of your state who are supposed to benefit from things like this? Or are you trying to meet a litmus test or achieve something, you know, for this sort of national progressive ideological movement? I don't know. It just, it sort of seems strange to me that like people in California should care all that much about, you know, the, the funding formula for Georgia schools. And, and I guess my worry is that if, if we get too much focused on this national sort of progressive ideological alliance, that the problems that are localized and that don't motivate small donors in California won't, won't get their due. The way I think about it, we, that already exists. You know, the democratic party is supposedly sharing all of these views. And so I think that what we're seeing is maybe a party shift or maybe kind of a sub party coming out of the Democratic Party. But I think that that already exists. And to me, it's no different um, trying to be beholden to, you know, your party or your subset of a party than it would be to a corporation who has sponsored you. You know, a local corporation could come up and say, hey, we're going to give you a lot of money and support your campaign and give you free advertisement and all that. And, you know, all of a sudden you're beholden to them. And so I just I think it's just different an allyship and it's just slightly changes who but doesn't really change the activity much. Yeah, I, I think your point is very valid, Kyle, but I, I think the thing that will counter it more than purposely trying to avoid becoming too much of a national figure is is that like that's not a successful strategy for abrams that if she wins if she tries to be some national democratic figure by doing national democratic issues and pursuing things that aren't tailored for georgia i just don't think it's going to be very viable and it's going to cause her to get in a lot of fights with the legislature that I don't think she wants to get in because even if you want to take like the very cynical view of Abrams that she's only running to be governor because she wants to be president of the United States, which I mean, she's alluded to on her own, even if you're taking that view, like probably the most unsuccessful way that she could run for president from the governorship of Georgia is by listening to national donors and doing a bunch of things that they want her to do and running like a super divisive four years as the governor of Georgia where she gets absolutely nothing done with the legislature and she just like reflects Washington. I think that would be quite possibly like making a lab way to not become president. And so I think, I think if she does win, even if she's influenced by national 
folks. Uh, it won't be any more than any other politician is in the same way that, you know, Sam Brownback was the, the poster child for the Koch brothers, uh, ideas about how small government should work and became a laboratory for a lot of those policies. I don't think Abrams is going to do something like that on the left. And I think also the issues that she's talking about at the beginning of this race are are really counter to that idea. uh, Since she's focusing on a lot of things that, you know, to me, feel pretty tailored to Georgia. Other states could do them as well, but they're they're pretty important issues to to Georgia politics. And people who listen to Georgia politics recognize those issues as ones that we've been dealing with for quite some time. Yeah, I don't have that worry about Abrams specifically because of her service in the state legislature. And I don't, I, I don't have any question about whether or not she understands the issues that are important of Georgia, important to Georgia. I'd I'd have a little bit more hesitancy if she had a background like David Perdue did before she jumped into this race, uh, because Perdue wasn't somebody who'd served in the state house or or state level politics before. You know, some somebody who comes in without much of a background but tries to raise all their money off of small dollar outside donors by being you know somebody who's the most purely progressive that you know that background is something that would be more concerning for me um but given all of our apprehension about uh national influence in local politics let's close this discussion with an op-ed from the new york times today which uh alleges which alleges (laughs) that alleges that brian kemp is an enemy of democracy did you guys see this article today and and can you give us just kind of the the download of whether you think it's accurate in terms of this uh, argument about how he has handled voting issues as secretary of state. I, I, this is, this is just not a new story to me. Like it was hard for me to get like re-enraged about it because this was just how I felt all throughout 2014 and 2016. Because I mean, Brian Kemp made no secret of the fact that he saw the secretary of state's office as a partisan office in which he was going to use it to advantage Republicans over Democrats. And he's made absolutely no secret of that. And he's also gone out of his way to ensure that the Secretary of State's office registers as few people as possible. Speaking personally, I've tried to change my registration to my new address uh, twice now online. It hasn't gone through yet. So tomorrow I get to call the... um, you know, the county registrar's office, try to figure out why that is. Uh, and I'm sure it's probably some minuscule, small reason that is stupid and doesn't matter. And it should have gone through, but didn't because I didn't cross an eye or uh, cross an eye. <laughs> I hope you didn't cross an I, eye. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't cross a T or dot an eye somewhere. Uh, and it's, you know, it's not like it's difficult to tell who I am. Uh, my name is, is, is pretty, you know, unique. I'm the only Lucas Van Boggs I've found. And it's, uh, you know, I'm sure I put my driver's license number down right and spelt my name right. So, and put my birthday down right. So there's probably some small thing somewhere that I didn't do that, you know, they don't tell you that this is why you haven't been updated. You just don't get updated. And so, I mean, that... It may not have been you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it very well might not have been me. And maybe maybe they have both of my attempts and they just have sat on it and not done anything with it, uh, which would not surprise me from this administration. My whole point is, Brian Kemp sucks. <laughs> and he is really, really especially bad at um, voter suppression. And he has gone out of his way to... You know, because there, there's like two types of Republicans when it comes to voter suppression and comes to election fraud speaking, right? There are the type of people who put on a great face and they pretend that this is a legitimate issue and they're really concerned and they're worried that some guy is going to go into the booth and vote for anybody on either side like eight times and no one's going to notice. And it's, you know, that's that's some huge concern that the state really needs to crack down on. And obviously, if you've had a pulse and paid attention to these stories, that's just not a thing that happens. Nobody does that. <laughs> like, it's happened. I've, I think I recall hearing about it, like, one time, and it was for Donald Trump in 2016. So it's just not a thing that happens. In-person election fraud is not a thing that happens. No. And they don't talk about other areas where actual voter fraud could happen, 
like absentee ballots, since you don't actually need an ID to do absentee ballots because, spoiler, Republicans like absentee ballots. So that's, you know, the first, the first group, the people who just, like, deny reality and pretend that they're doing it because they're good-hearted people who are concerned about fraud. The other group of people are the, like, Brian Kemp's of the world, who I would honestly say, and I'm not just saying that because I'm in Georgia, he is, like, the poster child for the type of Republican who is, like, yes, I've, I suppress voters and I like it because I am a Republican and I want Republicans to win, so I will, cr- I will pursue policies that will help Republicans win, and then when Democrats are working to counter those policies, he will explicitly say, as the quote in the article points out, but it's an older quote, but it still holds true, that when Democrats try to fight it or try to register people, he will be like, Democrats are registering people. This is a bad thing that I, as Secretary of State, need to do something about. Like, that is the framing that he runs, he ran for re-election on as Secretary of State. So... I, I don't know what to say besides the fact that Brian Kemp is a bad person who used his office for partisan reasons and will do the same thing if he be is is elected governor. And I'm happy that the you know failing New York Times has come to this realization that we've all known in the state of Georgia since 2014. And I'm happy he's he's getting you know uh, noticed for for that. Well, and let's just also talk about the ostrich-style, head-in-the-sand approach to handling the security issues. You know, we talked about that a bit last time, but we have voting machines, or at least we did, running Windows 2000, which hasn't been supported since July of 2010. For the record, it's August of 2018. It's eight years, people. Um, He also, you know, right. He also actively went after people who told him that there were security issues. And then all of a sudden, IT uh, storage of this uh, voter information and voting uh, information, it just gets destroyed in accordance with standard IT procedures, according to Kemp, which is not something that you do if you're in the middle of investigating what's going on and what your security flaws are with a certain thing. He's I can't decide if he's gaslighting us in the sense that he's he's just ignoring it to a point where he's where pe- he's trying to get people to believe, "Oh, well, it's just not a thing." Um so you you can just ignore it because I don't care and it's it's just not or if he's just legitimately not acknowledging that it's a problem that he has to face. I just don't know. I think that's a pretty good segue to our discussion with Representative Holcomb about election security issues. So how about we turn it over to that conversation? All right. So we're now joined by Representative Scott Holcomb. Uh, Representative Holcomb, thank you so much for joining the show. Happy to be here. Um, So part of the reason that we are having this discussion about election security is there are some folks who have a fear of whether or not Georgia will or will not have free a free and fair election in the midterms in, in 2018. So could you kind of give us your sense of how worried you are about the security of this year's elections and why? I've been concerned about Georgia's election system for some time. And in fact, I've been a vocal critic of the type of system that we use, which a lot of your listeners may already know. We use voting machines, effectively voting computers that are known as DREs. It's direct recording electronic, I think is what that stands for. And the problem with these machines, well, there are many. Uh, I'll start with first, they don't have any paper component. I think that's pretty well known, both here in Georgia and across the country. And there are very few states, I think Georgia is one of five states, that doesn't have any type of paper record whatsoever. So my concern there, and this goes back all the way to when the system was implemented, was all of us have had computers that have crashed, phones that have crashed, anything that is computer-based that hasn't worked. There's no backup in terms of the system that we use. It's just the computers themselves. So I've never liked it because there's no way to fully do any type of audit. The machine just tells you what the machine tells you. So 
I think it's very, very important for Georgia to move to a system that has a paper component so that way all of the votes can be recounted and audited in some way. Another big issue with the system that we use is that it relies on Microsoft 2000 operating system, which is an operating system that has not even been supported by Microsoft since 2010. So think about that. We're in 2018 right now, and we're using an operating system that goes back to 2000. So kids that are going to graduate from high school this year, uh, they were born uh, when this operating system was put into play. So that's certainly problematic, too. And then finally, we have the issues of cybersecurity. The type of machine that we use has been hacked by researchers. It is an unknown if any of our elections have been hacked and if the outcomes are changed. But this is where I come at it from. And I know that this is a long answer to your question. The challenge with the system that we have right now is that there is no 100% provable, transparent way that we can tell every single voter, one, your vote was counted, and two, your vote was counted as cast. So that's why I've been involved in this issue, because I really want us to move to a new system that has a paper component, so that way we have the ability to do audits and we can check, and it's more than just the machines telling us what the machines tell us. So I don't know if that ultimately means, to get to the other part of your question, that there are any issues with the election, that, that, and I don't think that anybody right now can, can tell you that, but there are enough concerns and there is this degree of uncertainty that I think makes a move towards um, something better uh, imperative and it's something that we need to do. So there were legislative proposals to address this issue last session. I know you were working on this issue with Scott Turner, a Republican uh, from Holly Springs, and and there were other bills that the legislature was considering up to the final day of the session. Um, So can you tell us just kind of why you think this was a problem that was not solved during the 2018 legislative session? Yes. Uh, There's a few reasons. One is I don't think the momentum for it really ever got going to the same extent as other issues. And as you know, the legislature in Georgia, our our legislative session is very compressed. And so there's a few issues that tend to get uh, a good bit of attention. And then it's sometimes challenging for others to get that. There was some media coverage, but I just don't think that it was as dominant as some of the other issues uh, that we wrestled with. And so that that was a challenge. I also think that it was not one of the absolute top priorities of the leadership. If it were, then it would have moved in some way. Uh, but that said, I can also tell you that at least on the House side, which is where I serve, there was a sincere interest in wanting to try to figure it out. And I was involved in what I would describe as meaningful conversations and discussions all the way through uh, the last day, all the way through the very last part of the last day. But we just weren't able to resolve our differences and get to a place to where I was comfortable with voting yes or Uh, a lot of other uh, of my colleagues. So where that leaves us, uh, I'm not sure in terms of the prospects going into next year, uh, because we'll see who we have um, as the next governor. I think that there is broad acceptance that we need uh, a new system, but figuring out what that system looks like is a challenge. And the last thing I'll say on this is there was a pretty big divergence of views in terms of I have listened very carefully and closely to experts across the country, spoken with them, written with them, 
collaborated with them and almost, uh, I can't think of one that has told me that they recommend anything other than a system that is primarily hand-marked paper ballots. So it's sort of an old school solution in a very technological world. And the primary reason for that is there's a lot of concerns about potential hacking. So hand-marked paper ballots, uh, hand-marked by the voter. The other potential systems are those where the machines print out a record of the vote. And there are people that favor those, uh, but the the challenge there is the machine, it depends on which votes you count, right? So if if you count the machine votes as opposed to the paper votes, if those are the, the voter record, then you could still have the same issue where those machines can be manipulated uh, and hacked in some way. It's hard for me to assess exactly the extent of the potential risk on that because I think different machines operate differently. But I understand and appreciate just that conceptual framework that anything that's digital potentially could be manipulated. Um, And then you have the, the, the paper ballot component of it to move forward. There, there's also disagreements over the counting process for the paper ballots. There are some that want all of those to be hand counted, and then there are others that are okay with the technological uh, feature, like what we do now in Georgia with absentee ballots, which is to use uh, optical scanners, kind of like what, it's similar to what we've all done with testing, with, you know, you mark a sheet with pen or paper, and then you run it through a machine, and it scans the answers. And that's the system that most states have, is paper with optical scanners. And I'm comfortable with that, because I think uh, humans are fallible. So hand counting uh, gives me a little bit of pause, because I think that there's a, a decent possibility that there could be inadvertent mistakes. Like it, it, how often do you count things and then need to count them, you know, multiple times over and over and over again? So you want to build a system that is fully accurate, um, transparent, and just that people have confidence in. And it's not easy to get full agreement on that. So given some of the disagreement on sort of the balance between, you know, technology and paper, how prescriptive do you think legislation should be? Is this something that you know, should be written into the text of the statute as the type of technology that Georgia should adopt? Or or is there room for discretion for, for instance, the Secretary of State or like local county elections officials to select their own technology? That's a great question. And Georgia has an overall statewide system. And there are other states that leave it to the respective counties and municipalities to figure it out on their own. Like by way of example, with the recent conversation that we've been having about potentially the court intervening and the fact that Virginia changed its um, system very quickly, they did that in various municipalities and counties because they don't have a uniform system like Georgia does. And, And so different states have different models in terms of where they assign the responsibilities and set the overall policy I tend to be in favor of the state setting the overall arching principles and then letting the details be worked out by the state election board and or the counties. Uh, That said, I will share with you that a number of um, uh, Georgians and even some of my constituents have raised the possibility of maybe moving to a system more like what's in place in Oregon and Washington, where they have mail-in ballots and things like that. So I'm open to a broader conversation other than just do we do handmark paper ballots for machines to maybe we could do something uh, even more systemically different in terms of, of the type of procedure that we move forward. To do that, though, you really need to get the public one educated and two engaged on this. And 
I don't think that we've done a very good job of that at all. There is a commission that was put together uh, by the Secretary of State. Uh, it hasn't done very much, in my opinion, and I don't think that it's been all that uh, active in terms of engaging the community. And the Secretary of State is also, I think, uh, it's a challenge for that office to be the messenger because they've very strongly defended the current system. In many ways, they've expressed their love for the system. Uh, but now, finally, seeing the full reality of what we're faced with, they're on one hand saying the system's fine, it's okay, nothing to see here. But in the other breath, they're saying that we need to move to a new system and change it and replace it. So we'll see where all that goes uh, going forward. But I want us to just ultimately, and I think probably everybody agrees with this, is just get it right and to come up with a system where really there's overall broad support, where every voter feels like their vote is being counted and counted as cast, and that everyone has confidence in the system. And I can tell you that there are people that absolutely do not have confidence in the system right now. They think that it is vulnerable. And even if that's true or not true, uh, there's no way to know for sure. And that's that's the issue that we keep coming back to and why we need to, to do something in terms of a change. So it, it seems possible that a federal judge really could force a change, at least in the short run. There's this discussion that I've seen right now. I actually think I saw that you had raised it, that a federal judge could force the state to use paper ballots during this year's elections. Um, do you think, what what is the likelihood you think of that happening? And do you think that's a good idea for a federal judge to step in and force paper ballots for this November? I don't assess it being probable that the judge will make that ruling. And here's why. I think that the plaintiffs waited uh, probably a little bit too long uh, to file their request to the judge. Um, the time frame is really compressed. By the time this airs, the, the first, uh, I think, briefs are due on the 14th, and then the responses to those briefs are due on the 20th, which means that the judge isn't going to act until at least after the 20th, because she's going to need time to read all of the pleadings that are going to be submitted by uh, the various parties and interested persons. So that time frame is really compressed, and I think it's going to be hard to work it through. Um, undoubtedly, all of the, the, the state and county officials who are going to weigh in are going to do some, or their pleadings are going to have some, some variety of, it's too expensive, uh, it, it's, it's too cumbersome, it, it's too challenging to get this pulled together, and we just can't do it. They're probably just going to throw up their hands and just say, we can't do this. It's, it's too challenging. I push back that on that a little bit because this lawsuit has actually been around for over a year. And the lawsuit contemplated filing or potentially filing an injunction for the municipal elections that we had last year. So all of the state and all the counties have been on notice for over a year that this is a possibility. So any good planning by a public administrator would have required some degree of contingency planning that this could be possible. Plus, they knew that the legislature was talking about this, too. Granted, we didn't pass anything, but this has been a conversation that's been going on for a while. So everybody should have been thinking about it and kind of um, working through these issues, not to mention the overall just conversation about foreign interference, hacking, et cetera, I don't think anybody would be surprised if there was a directive that said we need to change our system and move away uh, from paper. So uh, all that said, I, I, I would be surprised if the judge um, issues the decision, uh, mostly because of, of the timing. 
However, I definitely think that there is a legitimate basis for it, and that's why she didn't dismiss the idea out of hand, and she's going to listen to the arguments, uh, both pro and con, because she recognizes that this is a constitutional principle that we're talking about here, of making sure that votes are are counted and counted accurately. So I I think that, uh, as as I put out on... uh, on social media, it's a heavy lift, but there are definitely valid arguments for it. So one of the questions, however, will be if she issues the injunction, if there's not an emergency appeal to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals and protect and perhaps higher too. And, and I have a hard time seeing the 11th Circuit being sympathetic to uh, to a ruling Um that said that we had to move to all paper. Uh, we'll see if I'm right or wrong um, as it plays out. But uh, I, I will say that I think Judge Totenberg is, is spot on in terms of understanding the issues. And I know that she's going to be really thoughtful in how she handles it because that's how she's handled the entire case so far. And I think the other thing that I'll say is even if she doesn't make a short-term move towards an injunction and forcing the state to move away uh, from these unsecure machines, that doesn't mean that she doesn't ultimately rule that the state needs to do it, um, perhaps for next year uh, or, or, or such, so that we would have uh, at least a new system for 2020. Because there's, there's no guarantee that we're going to have legislative agreement. On, on the change in 2019. You know, there, there was pretty broad consensus that we needed a new system, but we weren't able to get the votes to, to change it in 18. So there's no guarantee that even though we need legislation, that we could get it to pass uh, next year either. Brian Kemp is the current Secretary of State. He is also running for governor. Um, do you have any reservations about a sitting Secretary of State who is running for another statewide office overseeing the elections in the race that he's running? And do you think that the legislature should put any kind of restrictions on that? A lot of people are raising this now. And one of the things that I've said is this isn't completely novel. He oversaw his own election uh, in 2010 and in 2014. Uh, granted, it was for a different office, but it was a statewide office. And you always have somebody who oversees uh, the role that's being played. Um, I think that part of what is driving it is that there is a concern among some of Georgia's voters that we do have this system that has both vulnerabilities in terms of the hacking, and then secondly, lacks transparency. So I question if we had a system that folks had confidence in and that was secure and that was transparent, if if you'd have the same degree of, of concern about the person overseeing it. Because if if you have a good system then the person who's overseeing it shouldn't be able to, in any way, shape, or form, uh, impact and influence that ultimate outcome. I think it is something that maybe we can explore um, going forward in terms of of the roles and rules. And one might just be if you're the Secretary of State and you decide to run for higher office, and I think probably Secretary of State would only really run for either lieutenant governor or governor, then you can't oversee your election for uh, another statewide office. But there is some logical inconsistency there, though, right? Because the person could still oversee his or her election for, for Secretary of State. For me, one of the, the issues that I think we're also seeing, and and I think is legitimate, it's a little bit different from the election integrity issue, is just whether or not uh, individuals who are being paid, uh, you know, six-figure salaries are 
in fact doing the jobs that they're paid to do, or are they just now campaigning all the time? So I kind of like hyper-transparency, and I think it would be helpful if we had, by way of example, using Secretary Kemp, if he published his daily calendar and schedule of where he is and what he's doing, so the voters can see, is this guy actually doing his job as the Secretary of State, or is he just running around the state campaigning for governor or sitting in a room doing call time, you know, four or five, six hours a day and still making his salary? Because you really shouldn't be getting paid or a subsidy from taxpayers to make over $100,000 uh, to not do your job, but to be campaigning for another job. And that's just Secretary Kemp in this example, but certainly we know that there are other contexts where that happens of statewide officials who are running statewide. And the question is, how much are they actually doing you know, their job and how much are they doing campaigning. So that's something that I'd like to kind of explore and see if there's some things that we could potentially do. Like, and one thing the legislature could do would be to mandate that constitutional officers publish accurate calendars of what they're doing in terms of their time and how many days they're taking off and why and where they are and what they're doing and, and all those kind of things. Anything that we didn't touch on that you'd like to add? Yeah. So one other thing that um, I would discuss is just that we've found that the system has some pretty major flaws in terms of voter registration and accuracy. You have the issue with Representative Dan Gassaway and his district, which Haversham County has admitted that it made mistakes and put people in the wrong districts. Uh, in my district, District 81, uh, that I represent, which for your listeners is roughly around, it's primarily in DeKalb County, a little bit in Gwinnett County, and uh, a precinct has improperly and unlawfully uh, been placed into House District 79, uh, about 700 voters, so which is a big number in a state house election in a district, I'm a Democrat in a district that's, uh, or in a precinct that is about 77% democratic performing. And, uh, just by coincidence, the same year that I was the number one target for the GOP, um, in the 2012 election, we went through redistricting in 2011 and then in 2012, uh, the, Republican Party set its its sights on me in the House as being the number one uh, pickup that they wanted to flip uh, from Democratic to Republican. And how convenient, how convenient that the exact same year, uh, one of the most Democratic precincts in my district was improperly placed into a very Republican district for which there was no Democratic um, opponent. And then it stayed that way in 2014 and 2016, and it was caught this year. Uh, some might ask, well, how come it wasn't caught sooner? A couple of reasons. One, there was no Democratic opponent um, to the Republican in House District 79 in 12, 14, or 16. So there was nobody who was going around and, and, and checking um and doing door knocking and those type of things for which uh, they would have probably looked at their maps and said, wait a minute, this doesn't look right. Like this is putting us in an area that's outside of, of our district map. Um, and then my side didn't find it because the way that the system works is we get our information from the Secretary of State's office. And when you plug in, if you want to go knock on doors, you plug in um, streets and things like that. And it told us that it was not in the district. So unless you have a reason to then like go in, uh, or, or actually I misspoke. So what you do is you would just say, I want streets within House District 81. And so it would only capture streets that are within House District 81. And it would not include the others because it had them mismarked. So you would have to have a reason to go and look up those specific streets and then you could see that it was wrong. 
My guess is, is that the issue is probably not limited to just our two districts. So another thing that really should happen is, and, and I've said this publicly in other venues, is that there really should be a, some type of audit that's taking place, uh, whether it's spot checking or otherwise, to make sure that the districts are in fact accurate. And of course, uh, before you know it, we'll be going through redistricting again and that whole process will open up all of these issues again and we're going to have to be really vigilant in how we go about um, uh, carving up the lines and making sure that everything is accurate for sure. So it looks like my issue is finally fixed. It took over a month even though I identified all of the people and, and, and handed it right to uh, the voting officials at the state and county level, but it looks like it is finally fixed. So going forward, um, that won't be an issue. And I didn't mention it, but some folks might be listening. Well, would that have changed the outcome of any of your elections? And the answer is no, because the precinct is an overwhelmingly Democratic district. So what would have happened is I, I would have just won by higher margins instead of uh, by the margins that, that I did um, prevail with. I, I would have had even bigger vote totals. So we'll see how it turns out this fall. All righty. Well, Representative Holcomb, thanks so much for, for joining the show and talking us through all of these election security issues. Happy to, to join you. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, thank you for Representative Holcomb for for joining us to tell us about those election security issues. Um, With that, I think we are going to leave it there for the week, guys. Uh, So, Megan, thanks for for joining us again. It was a pleasure. Thank you, as always. And Luke, good luck with the hell you are about to enter. That is 2L, right? 2L. 2L. Woohoo! 2L. The way out is through, as, as I say to myself. You'll do fine. Oh, I'm yeah. sure. It's just it's just the doing of it. Well, with that, uh, we will. This podcast will go on at least so long as Luke is a law student, so that we can have the joy of one day telling you that he graduated. Um, but for that, we are going to leave that there for this week. So we will talk to y'all next week. Bye, guys. Bye. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.